so good to sing together this morning. I want to ask you a question. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Now, these are the, the moments in time where I think back in youth ministry. If I would have asked that question then, inevitably, I would have gotten a sixth grader saying, my reflection, and they would be true for sure. Uh, somebody else would shout out, zits, and I'm sure inevitably that freshman dude would follow up with, I see a good looking dude, right? But I'm talking about something a little different than that. But before that, students, we love you. We are so behind you as a church. College students, I know you just finished dead week and you're in finals week and we're behind you. We got seniors that are graduating. We love you as a church. But it's interesting how our perception of ourselves changes as we grow older. There's a guy named uh, Gordon McKenzie. He was a bit of a legend in the art world back in the 80s. He worked for Hallmark and he would go around in schools and he would ask a question. Who's an artist in here? And when he'd go in the kindergarten, he'd ask that question. Inevitably, the whole room, both hands would shoot up. Me, me, me. Instantly, every person in the artist in the room was an artist. He'd get to first grade, he'd ask the same question. 100%, but this time it'd be one hand. Me, me, me. By the time he got to sixth grade and asked the question, who's an artist? Maybe he would get two people that would kind of shyly, sheepishly stick up a hand, wondering how much the other people would think they're weird for that. Our perception of ourselves continues to change over time. I wonder sometimes if we look in the mirror and we look at the person in the mirror, if we start to see somebody because of their failures. Or I wonder at times if we look in the mirror and we see someone because of all of their accomplishments. But I wonder this, if Jesus were standing next to you as you looked in the mirror, what would he see? We want to look at that this morning. We're in Acts chapter 9, so if you have a Bible, you can join me there. And we'll start in verse 1, Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing out murder, murder, sorry, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any that belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He's still breathing out murderous threats. He's ruthless, looking for men and women, anyone that were following Jesus Christ. Let's, let's get a little bit of reminder on who this guy is. Remember just a couple chapters ago, in the end of chapter 7, there was a disciple that was stoned and murdered for his faith in Jesus Christ and was proclaiming it to the religious leaders at the time. And in verse 58 of chapter 7, it says this, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. If we'd actually jump forward into chapter 22, Saul himself would say this, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Then we get into chapter 8 and we realize that Saul, this young man, was passionately ravaging the church. In fact, in chapter 9, we're going to see a word uh, describing Saul that he had wreaked havoc on the church. Stott says it was a brutal, sadistic cruelty. And not only there in Jerusalem, but if we skip all the way to chapter 26 and verse 9, it says this, Paul himself, or Saul himself sharing this. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. 
And I did so in Jerusalem, not only locking up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I pursued, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So the, the Jewish Christians were in Jerusalem and, and Saul was running around, rounding them up, killing them, taking them off to prison. And as they scattered and dispersed about, he wasn't willing to let them go. He now became uh, as though a predator stalking his prey. He hunted them down to every place that they'd gone. One of those places was in <clears throat> what we're looking at in chapter 9 now. So out to Damascus. There was a synagogue located there. No doubt there were synagogues all over as the Jews had been dispersed into exile. And so Saul now goes to follow them there. Now, what else do we know about Saul? We know that he was a highly educated Jew, that he had studied under Gamaliel, and he scrupulously followed the law. Every letter that he thought possible, he would try and follow it. He also, we also know that he was a zealot. In, in Philippians chapter 3, it says, as for zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, what is a zealot? It's someone with violent passions to preserve the purity and faithfulness of Israelites' commitment to Yahweh, their God. In fact, the first zealot we ever find is in Numbers chapter 25. It's Aaron's grandson. It's a priest, and his name is Phineas. The children of Israel had landed near uh, an area where the Moabites had lived. And the Moabites had started to infiltrate the camp. They had started inviting the Israelites to worship their God. The men started bringing Moabite women into the camp and practicing sexual immorality with them. In fact, all of this started taking place as God was speaking to the children of Israel about their wickedness. And one of the men in the camp brought a Moabite woman into the camp and went into his tent. And Phineas, with a passionate rage to preserve the purity and the commitment of the Israelite people, grabbed a spear, followed them into the tent, and drove it through both of them. We know that Saul had a passionate, intense fury to preserve the purity of God, although he'll find out later he's misdirected. Every morning he would recite the Shema. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one, a monotheistic God, a God of one person. And, and so he thought, thought that Jesus was misleading people away from the one true God. He was also a Pharisee, this hyper-religious Jewish group that started to take the laws from the priestly duties and try to impose them on everyone in everyday life. So the priests had certain uh, duties they were supposed to do within the temple, and they would go and wash their hands before they practiced this temple. So the Pharisees then thought that everyone should go wash their hands before their prayer or before their meals. Or the priests prayed certain blessings before they would enter into a meal. So, so everyone should say a certain prayer before a meal. They tried to impose additional laws onto everyone all the time. Now legalism can be very dangerous when you start to impose your laws on other people. So this is where we find Saul now hunting down the church. And what happens? We get to verse 3. It says this. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. About 150 miles from Jerusalem, this desert 
uh, oasis, the city that was right next to the desert, and it was a trade route. A lot of areas would go through it. In fact, there was a street, a main road that ran through Damascus called Straight Street. I guess you could probably say it was probably pretty straight, right? Went from east to west, and it was a common area, and he's trying to find the Christians that are there now, those that belong to the way. And suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul experiences a moment with Jesus, and Jesus reveals his truth to him. I can't imagine Saul sitting there going, what is happening? Do you notice the way that Jesus referred to the persecution? Isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? When he asked who you are, he says, Jesus, the head of the church that you're persecuting, right? But he doesn't. He says, me. This Jesus is so intimately connected to his church that when his church suffers and hurts, he suffers and hurts. It's one united body. In fact, maybe remember Matthew chapter 25 when Jesus is talking. He says, remember when I, when I was hungry and you fed me? When I was thirsty and you invited me in? When I was a stranger or when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When, when I was a stranger and you invited me in, the list goes on and on. And they said, Lord, wh- when do we do this? He said, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. Jesus is personally connected to the church. And as the church is being ravaged and persecuted and murdered, he knows, he hurts, he is present with them. I can't imagine at this point that Saul's mind goes into this mind-blown experience. The God I was seeking to follow and pour out my passion and zeal for is the God I'm actually opposing and persecuting. How could this be? It goes on, verse 6. He said, But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who are traveling with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. For three days. I have to believe that Saul is sitting in darkness. He's not eating. That takes up a lot of time. He's not drinking. And he's wrestling with the truth he's just encountered. You have to remember that the Christian movement is rooted in the Jewish movement. It's now a messianic Jewish movement that is flowing out from Judaism. It's not meant to be separate in Christianity, but it's meant to point to the Messiah, to the Redeemer. So for three days, he has to be wrestling with what's taken place. But, th- but this Messiah that God had promised was supposed to be this king. But then we remember back in chapter 8, as Philip was talking with Ethiopian, 
He spoke of him as a suffering servant. But, but what about all the sacrifices that we've placed on animals for our atonement? There's, there's no way that animals could really ever complete that. But could it be that God's son is God? That God is a triune God, one God in three persons, and that his son is the ultimate sacrifice? What about Abraham and this blessing that would bless the whole world? Could it be that Jesus was that blessing that flowed from David's line? As he continued to see and wrestle through this, I wonder what went through his mind. Because whenever I see my need, it either makes me want to work harder or give up and surrender. Now, often it's just work harder. There's got to be something I can do. Like there's got to be some more laws I can follow. There's got to be something more I can give. There's got to be something more I can pay, right? God, how much do I owe you? Let me just write you a check. Everybody that's 20 and under here just said, what in the world is a check, right? Let, Let me just Venmo you, right? God, how much do I owe you? But that doesn't work. We can never pay enough. So at some point in our life, we have to realize that the truth leads us to this point of scandalous grace. I learned in my church growing up that grace meant unearned, undeserved favor. This scandalous grace of God extended to us. Keller tweeted this out. The gospel is this. You are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared to believe. This is absolutely true for Saul. But you are more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. This is also absolutely true of Saul. Martin Luther tweeted this out. Actually, he didn't tweet it. He's more of a pen and paper kind of guy. Whoever sees Christ as a mirror of the Father's heart actually walks through the world with new eyes. Mm. So let me ask you this statement. God loves you with the same love that he loves his perfect son, Jesus Christ. What goes through your mind and in your heart when you hear that? God loves you with the same love that he loves his perfect son, Jesus Christ. How I understand that and how I accept that tells me a lot about my belief and understanding in the theology of grace. Someone said it this way. Religion says, oh, I messed up. My dad is going to kill me. But a relationship with Jesus says, I messed up. I got to call my dad. I wonder how much we understand the grace that is offered to us. And Saul is sitting there three days without sight, neither eating or drinking, is pondering the truth that's been exposed to him. And now God is going to show him an act of grace through someone who themselves has experienced this grace. In verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise up and go to a street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For he, behold, he is praying and he sees a vision of a man named Ananias 
come in, lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias. Now, you guys all know Ananias, right? Who is this guy? Like in our, in our minds, we go, okay, David, king, killed giants. Yeah, I got David. Moses, yeah, I led the people out of, out of Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh got some, some stuff around that for him. Even Saul. Okay, Saul, I understand this. Ananias? We don't know a lot about Ananias, do we? We're like, wait, didn't, didn't we hear about him in chapter 5, Ananias? No, actually, it's a totally different guy. Ananias was a very common name. It's a reminder to me that God has plans and purpose for each and every one of us. He's gifted us uniquely, and we're all invited to join him in the story in different ways to bring about the flourishing that he has planned in this world. So Ananias responds in verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. It's as though Ananias is like, hey, uh, God, there might be some things that you haven't gotten the memo on. Let me fill you in. So you just asked me to go meet with this guy that's come to Damascus, but he actually came here to hunt me down. And if I go meet with him, he's killed people, he's, he's persecuted people, he's locked people up in prison. There's a sense of fear that you're sensing from Ananias. God, do you, do you uh, understand what you're asking me to do? I wonder if even maybe there's a sense of anger within Ananias. Very likely that he could have known someone in his family or someone in the church that had been persecuted by this very man. If God asked you to go and, and be a part of the work he's doing in someone's life that had killed your family, would you go? Mm. It's a reminder, too, that God doesn't use perfect people. There's only been one perfect person that walked this earth. And from that point on, his plan has been to use imperfect people, ordinary people, people filled with his spirit who dare to obey what he asks them to do. So how does Ananias respond? Verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry out my name before the Gentiles, the king and the children of Israel. For I will show him that he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. Go. So interesting to me how detailed God often is not in his instructions. Now, he does give Ananias a little bit more here. Remember with Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, God said, go, Abraham. And Abraham says, where? And, and he doesn't tell him. Actually, the information that he gives him, he gives him more information that he already knows. He tells him where he's going to leave his family. He, he tells him all these things he's leaving from. I'm sure Abraham's like, hey, I already knew that, but where are we going? But by faith, he steps out. Genesis chapter 22, he tells Abraham, to sacrifice his son. Not a whole lot of details in that one either. And here we find him telling Ananias, go. Gives him a few other details of where he's going to find him and what he's going to use Saul for. But as Ananias walks in there, there's still a lot of unknowns, I'm sure, going through his mind. But he does know this. He knows that God has chosen Saul. Saul later realizes this too. This truth rocks him. In Romans chapter 1, verse 1, he says, uh, I am a servant of Christ, set apart for the gospel. God had a plan for Saul's life. 
John 15, he actually says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus is actively at work in each and every one of our lives, drawing us closer to him. It's this mind-blowing reality and truth that God is completely in control, completely sovereign, knows all, and yet somehow in his invitation to us gives us the ability to respond or to reject him. Something I don't think I'll ever be able to wrap my mind around. But C.S. Lewis gives a little uh, glimpse of this in his own story, in his book called Surprised by Joy. It's an autobiography. As he shares a little bit more about his experience in his conversion with Jesus, he says this, The odd thing was that before God closed in on me, I was in fact offered what now is to appear as a moment wholly free choice. In a sense, I was going up to Hedenton Hill on the top of a bus. Without words, and I think almost without images, a fact about myself was somehow presented to me. I became aware that I was holding something at bay or shutting something out. Or if you like, that I was wearing some stiff clothing, like corsets, or even a suit of armor as if I were a lobster. I felt myself being there and then given a free choice. I could open the door or keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armor or keep it on. Neither choice was presented as a duty. No threat or promise was attached to either, though I knew to open the door or to take off the course that meant the incalculable. The choice appeared to me to be momentous, but it was also strangely unemotional. I was moved by no desires or fears. In a sense, I was not moved by anything. I chose to open and unbuckle and loosen the rein. I chose Yet, it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. He goes on to say, To me, as I then was, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. It's not that the mouse goes and finds the cat. It's that the cat finds the mouse. God pursues us. We don't find God. And in this reality, God is continuing to pursue Saul. It gets into this theological framework called election. And it can be very hard for us to understand, but the best way I heard somebody phrase it is that election is not a doctrine to be analyzed, but it's a truth to be adored. This God of the universe loves and pursues us. But not only that, he has a plan. He says that he's his instrument. Another word for this in Greek would be vessel. It's this handcrafted instrument for a specific purpose. God is going to use him in an incredible way. So verse 17, Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, scandalous grace. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight and he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. It's interesting we see these different pictures that Luke's painting that show the conversion that's taking place almost as these symbols or metaphors in Saul's life. He talks about light and darkness. He talks about blindness and then seeing. And it's interesting, a lot of people have actually thought that God changed his name. That's not true. Saul is actually his Hebrew name. It's his hometown name, Shaul. Paul is just the Greek form or derivative of that. It's, it's his Roman name. It may be similar to someone named Joseph. In Spanish, it would be Jose, right? 
Or for me, Josh, and my Spanish friends often call me Josh, right? It's, it's the same name, but utilized in different ways. But Paul is using it as a device to show us the conversion that's taken place in his life. Scales fall from his eyes and he can see. This, the scales is often used throughout Greek literature. It could be used to, to t- talk to uh, the scales on a fish or the scales on a snake, the snakeskin, or even the peel of an onion or, or the, the shell of a nut. It also can be used to talk through a scab coming off and healing. God performs healing on Saul in his eyes, and he can literally see, but there's something more that's taken place in his life. He can spiritually see the truth of God's grace and the salvation that's been offered. So what's he do? Immediately, he was baptized. Because when God takes root in our lives, we want to show others the transformation that's happened in our life. It's crazy to me. He does this before he even goes and gets food. He just gets up and he, he, he goes, and he's baptized, and then he gets food and he moves on. In verse 19, for some days he was with the disciples, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Saul did not lose his zeal. His zeal was redirected for what it was made for. This creator had built a creation, handcrafted and made Saul with a passionate skill, a personality and ability to proclaim him in miraculous ways in courageous ways. And we're going to see that unfold through the story of Acts. He's a new creation, but God now uses that new creation in that same framework that he's wired within Saul for his plans and his purpose. In the same way that he wants to use each one of us in the ways that he's given us skills and gifts and personalities. Verse 23, And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Because their plot became known to Saul, but their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But the disciples took him in by night and led him down through an opening in the wall and lowering him in a basket. Verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Now this makes sense, right? He had gone up to Damascus for one purpose alone. And when he's returning, they're thinking he's still on that. I wonder if, if they think, yeah, is this a ploy to draw us out so he can bound us, bind us? They reject him. They're scared of him. We like the idea of grace in theory, but putting it into practice is a whole other thing. For these disciples, they're concerned for themselves. But they are going to learn to continue to extend grace and truth. The reality is this. It's not just grace or it's not just truth. It's grace and truth. John 1.14 says this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That same spirit of grace and truth now lives in the church. And it's not half grace and half truth. It's full of grace and truth. It's not either grace or truth. It's full of grace 
and truth. Grace often is something, if we just look at that and not hold any truth, that can lead to compromise. And truth is something that if we just look at that and don't hold to any grace, can lead to being an uncaring jerk. But God has used this way within his son to extend both the truth of the reality of the Savior and salvation that's offered in a way of grace. Kevin DeYoung says it this way, Jesus came from the Father, full of grace and truth. All grace, all truth, all the time. Now he expects his people, his followers, to do the same. So how will they respond? Verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how on the road uh, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. This person who they thought would be impossible to come to know Jesus, the reality now is found. He truly has. I wonder who's on your list, who you'd say there's no way this person could ever come to know Jesus. I I know Jesus' grace has no bounds, but I mean, come on. It's this person. And yet God has done a work in Saul's life and shown the disciples that his grace and his salvation has no boundaries. No one is too far from God to continue to be reached. So they were concerned for themselves, but then they turn as disciples and as a family, their concern for Saul. He goes in and out preaching boldly in verse 29. He spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, this very group that he was a part of, that he was persecuting with. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers, there it is again, we see that word. When the brothers learned of this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Their concern for him and for his life cared for him enough to bring him and send him back to Tarsus. Saul's going to go there and and he's going to be there for seven years before we see him again. Showing up a little bit later down the road in chapter 11. Luke uses this device to leave us in one place and he'll show us and pick us back up in that place as the stories continue to unfold all around him. But the reality of this is that God continues to be at work showing his grace through his people. Verse 31, So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. It grew as they feared, as they obeyed God. And they were comforted by his spirit. They continued to live out this kingdom life and the church multiplied. Church, if you looked in the mirror, do you see God's grace in your life? The reality is this, God paid for all of your sins through his death, through his son, all of them. The ones that people have seen and those secret sins that you hope no one will ever see, that you hope no one will ever have the the knowledge of it being exposed And the realization that God sees all and knows all will either do one of two things. It will crush you or it will set you free with a freedom you never thought possible. 
When you look in the mirror, do you see God's grace? Do you see the way the God of the universe sees you with his love and his compassion, his forgiveness and his grace? Second question I would ask is, do you display his grace? Do you live to display the grace of God to others? I read a story of a, a way this grace was displayed that I thought beautifully pictures this. So I thought, rather than trying to say it, I'm just going to take a little second to read it to you. It's a little bit longer, so buckle up. It's from Philip Yancey. It's, it's a book called Church, Why Bother? And he says this, Perhaps in reaction against the legalism of his childhood, Bill Leslie, the pastor of LaSalle Street Church, never tired of the theme of grace. He recognized his own endless need for grace. He preached it almost every Sunday and offered it to everyone around him in starkly practical ways. I sat under his ministry Sunday after Sunday and I gradually absorbed grace as if by osmosis. I came to believe, truly believe, that God loves me, not because I deserve it, but because he is a God of grace. God's love comes free of charge with no strings attached. There is nothing I can do to make God love me more or less. Grace, I concluded, was the factor most glaringly absent from my childhood church. If only our churches could communicate grace to a world of competition and judgment and ranking, a world of ungrace, then the church would become a place where people gathered eagerly, without coercion, like desert nomads around an oasis. Now when I attend church, I look inward. I ask God to purge me from the poisons of rivalry and criticism and fill me with grace. I seek out churches characterized by a state of grace. I learned an enduring lesson about grace, what it looks like in action from my church's response to Adolphus a young man with a wild, angry look in his eye. Every inner city church has at least one Adolphus. He spent some time in Vietnam, and most likely his troubles started there. He could never hold a job for too long. His fits of rage and craziness sometimes landed him in an asylum. If Adolphus took his medication on Sunday, he was manageable. Otherwise, well, church, it became even more exciting than usual. He might start in the back and high hurdle his way over the pews down to the altar. He might raise his hands in the air during a hymn and make obscene gestures. Or he might wear headphones and tune into rap music instead of the sermon. As a part of the worship, LaSalle had a time called Prayers of the People. We would all stand and spontaneously, various people would call out a prayer for peace in the world, for healing of the sick, or for justice in the community around us. Lord, hear our prayer, we would respond in unison after each spoken request. Adolphus soon figured out that prayers for the people provided an ideal platform for him to air his concerns. Lord, thank you for creating Whitney Houston and her magnificent body, he prayed one morning. After a puzzled pause, a few chimed in weakly, Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, we thank you for the big recording contract I signed last week and for all the good things happening in my band, prayed Adolphus. Those of us who knew Adolphus realized he was fantasizing, but others joined in with a heartfelt, Lord, hear our prayer. Regular attenders came to expect the unexpected from Adolphus's prayer. Visitors had no idea what to think. 
Their eyes would snap open, their necks would crane to get a look at the source of these unusual prayers. Some of these prayers were met with an awkward silence. Once Adolphus prayed that the white honky pastors of this church would see their houses burned down this week. No one seconded that prayer. Adolphus had already been kicked out of three other churches. A group of people in the church, including a doctor and a psychiatrist, took Adolphus in as a special project. Every time he had an outburst, they pulled him aside and talked it through, using the words inappropriate a lot. Adolphus, your anger may be justified, but there are appropriate and inappropriate ways to express it. Praying for the pastor's house to burn down is inappropriate. We learned that Adolphus sometimes walked five miles to church on Sunday because he could not afford the bus fare. Members of the congregation began to offer him rides. Some invited him over for meals. Most Christmases he spent at our assistant pastor's family's home. The day came when Adolphus asked to join the church. The elders quizzed him on his beliefs and found little by way of encouragement and decided to put him on a kind of probation. He could join when he demonstrated that he understood what it meant to be a Christian, they decided and when he learned to act appropriate around others in church. Against all odds, Adolphus' story had a happy ending. He calmed down. He started calling people in the church when he felt the craziness coming on. He even got married. On the third try, Adolphus finally was accepted for church membership. Grace comes to people who do not deserve it. For me, Adolphus came to represent grace. His entire life, no one had ever invested that kind of energy and concern in him. He had no family. He had no job, no stability. The church became for him the one stable place. It accepted him despite all that he had done to earn rejection. The church did not give up on Adolphus. It gave him a second chance and a third and a fourth. Christians who had experienced God's grace transferred it to Adolphus. That stubborn, unquenchable grace gave me an indelible picture of what God puts up by choosing to love the likes of me. I now look for churches that exude that kind of grace. Father, may we be a church that exudes your grace, that lavishes your scandalous grace on those the world rejects, on those the world seems untouchable to, on those that go outside of our boundaries of comfort and security. Jesus, thank you for a grace that has come into our lives that transforms and changes us. Thank you for looking at us with eyes of love, though we don't deserve it. Thank you for your acceptance because of your son. Father, may we be a church that continues to display this scandalous grace to everyone who comes across our path. In Jesus' name. Amen.